Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Anna Epstein. Anna was born in Melbourne to Yiddish-speaking Polish Jews of the Holocaust generation, which awakened her early interest in the plight of those fleeing misfortune. Her work for Multicultural Arts Victoria introduced her to the work of Yiddish writer and poet Melikrovich and his artist son, Yossel Bergner, who, like so many of the refugees she encountered in her work, were poets of exile. Anna's recently published Melikrovich, the eccentric outback quest of an urbane Yiddish poet from Poland, chronicles the story of the poet's journey across the Australian outback. Welcome, Anna. So great to have you uh, all the way across across the globe, as it were, um, to talk about your book, which is absolutely, I couldn't put it down, and everybody here has tried to steal it off my desk before I was able to take it home to finish it. Please let them buy it. They are going to buy it. We're going to work out something, so it will be available in our bookstore. So um, let's get started so our listeners know. The name of the book, as I mentioned in the introduction, is Melikrovich, The Eccentric Outback Quest, of an urbane Yiddish poet from Poland. So tell me about, a little bit before we get started, about your Yiddish roots and the Australian community, and again then, what led you to write this story? Oh, they're they're two very different answers, uh, if you can listen to them all. My Yiddish roots, uh, it was my mamaloshin, and to my shame, I speak it very uh, rudimentarily but it was the first language that I heard. Uh, My parents came here from Poland in 1939. The war started when they were on the ship, and that was the language that I heard in my home. And that story you'll hear all around the Melbourne Jewish community, which, apart from Israel, had the biggest proportion of Holocaust survivors in the world all gathered in one little suburb, really. And most Jews in Melbourne trace their roots back to Poland, some to Russia. And in Australia, that's unusual. In the Sydney Jewish community, they're German and Hungarian and mainly not Yiddish-speaking. So... That was my background, and I was a curator at the Jewish Museum of Australia for 20 years, and my last exhibition was called Mamaloshin. And I did that exhibition because I was dismayed to see the younger generation repudiating that Yiddish heritage and those thousand years of marvellous Yiddish culture as they joined Zionist youth groups, and everything became... Israeli, and the accents in which we sang our festival songs became Sephardic accents, and it was as if my parents' heritage was being totally wiped out, which led to me doing that exhibition, and it was called Mamalosh and How Yiddish Made a Home in Melbourne, and Melbourne had a vibrant Yiddish community scene from the 30s right through to the 60s. There was theatre, there was literature, there was book publishing, and there was um, a suburb in which I live now, but which all the Jews have now left when they became all right. Next, they moved 
further south of the river, um, in which the original Kadima, the Yiddish cultural centre, had a theatre, had a Yiddish school, and this tiny little community, which was struggling migrants who all worked in the Schmatter business, managed to build these buildings, these, the theatre and the school. So that's, that's the Melbourne Yiddish community, and the Kadima still exists, and it's vibrant and thriving. Um, but it's in a different part of Melbourne now. But what led me to write this story was something entirely different. I worked for an organisation called Multicultural Arts Victoria where I edited a publication in which was published a story about Malaprovich. I'd never heard of him. This was in about 1991, I think. And with that story was published a photo one of the 90 photos that he took on his outback journey. And it was Malach Ravitch leaning. It was such a, an Australian picture. He was dressed in a white shirt and a bow tie. His trousers hitched up nearly to his armpits. And he was leaning against a corrugated iron wall, stony ground. And with him was a young pipe-smoking Aboriginal woman, whom he said in his caption in Yiddish um, that this was the most beautiful woman in Darwin, including the whites, he said. And the juxtapositions of that photograph intrigued me so much that I followed his story and I found that he had undertaken this journey almost entirely alone through the Australian outback, through some of the most inhospitable country in the world. There, there wasn't a road for the part that he travelled in a mail truck. There were no four-wheel drives. The springs were coming through the seats across this stony country, stony riverbeds. And he'd taken 90 photos on a old box brownie Kodak camera and they were still in Melbourne in an album because he'd left them with one of his hosts and that man's children who were all now in their 80s had preserved the album and had very generously lent it to me and I resolved to bring that incredible story and those photos to light in a book so that was the beginning so let's back up a little bit, if we may. Um, Melek Ravitch ha has great renown as a Yiddish poet. He was very much involved and very much a champion of Yiddish and Yiddish culture. Let's talk a little bit, if you will, about what led him to Australia. He was employed by the Yiddish school system in Poland, Seashore, were the initials, and he went on fundraising trips around the world to Yiddish communities. He'd just been to South Africa, and he came to Melbourne because he was also one of the editors of Literarische Blätter in Warsaw, and he knew that there was a Yiddish community here and he 
looked up to see whether there were any subscribers to his Yiddish newspaper, and he found that there were two. And one of them was dead, apparently, and one of them was this man with whom he left his photograph album. So that was the reason he came here. He got a hero's welcome when he came here. He spoke at the Kadima in Melbourne, and the walls were bursting. The whole community was beside itself that this famous Yiddish poet had come here. And then, apparently, completely on his own initiative, after raising what money he could for the Yiddish schools, he took off around Australia. He visited all the mainland capitals. He did a few trips into the country. And then he did this extraordinary trip in the outback from south to north, from Adelaide to Darwin, because he had that year, he'd been in Germany and he'd seen the rise of Hitler and he was absolutely prescient. And he told all the Jews that he knew and met throughout Poland and other places where he travelled. He was an amazing traveller. And in, in Poland, he used to go on these trips reading in little towns all over Poland. So he met Jews everywhere all the time, as well as all over the world. But the European ones, he urged them to leave. He knew what was coming. And when he got to Australia, and he'd been to so many countries, he'd been to 40, more than 46 countries by this stage, and written poetry and prose all along the way, which has not been translated, unfortunately, not into English anyway. Um, and he'd seen, as he said, that the world was vast and that there were many empty spaces. And he was sure, having spoken to Australians, and seeing that Australia had such a tiny population, that there was room for a million Jewish refugees here. So he took this trip and went exploring, and he spoke to the administrator of the Northern Territory, and he spoke to agronomists and everyone he could find. And they all told him, yes, the land needs settling, and yes, there is room here. And the other thing they told him, which is scandalous to our modern ears, and he completely took it on board, was that the land was empty, it belonged to nobody. So he, he saw the Aborigines and he saw their plight very sympathetically. He could see that they were headed for genocide, the same as the Jews of Europe were. But he thought they were so primitive that they had no claim the land and that it was the Jews who were going to make the desert bloom, as they later said, of Palestine. And he was part of the Territorialists movement, correct? That's right, yes. And the Free Land League. Yeah, different than the Zionists. And, and they saw the possibility that Australia had this land which might be home for millions of Jews. Yes. Yeah. Um, you include in the in the book uh, translations of Ravitch's writing uh, from Australia, and these were sort of dispatches to the newspaper, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. And in, in Warsaw. Oh, um, and the writing is he's 
just a keen writer, a really frank and beautiful observer, at times funny and at times very poignant. And I wonder what your takeaway is in terms of what he wrote about and what he was seeking to find and the reaction to both the country and the people and all of these complexities. Uh, it's a lot of it's questions. It's very complicated, the reaction that any modern reader would have. Um, my publishers were dismayed by his racism, by his colonial era view of Indigenous Australians. And their instinct was to write a disclaimer. They didn't want to be associated with his racism. But I saw him in a very complicated way. He was a racist and he was a colonial era European and he did subscribe to that view that we, we've called it in Australia terra nullius, that the land was empty and it was ours to do with whatever we wanted to with. On the other hand, he did what very few white Australians have done, ever. And he learned some Aboriginal words in Aboriginal languages. How accurate he was, I've got no idea. But he took the trouble to do that. And he was horrified when he saw Aboriginal skeletons in a display case in a museum in Sydney, as if they were already an extinct race and as if they weren't human beings at all so his reaction to the aborigines was extremely complicated and it was like that wherever he went in the world he had both a lot of sympathy for indigenous peoples and that colonial era racism at the same time so like modern australians he saw very little, and on the other hand, he saw a lot more than we see. And he, he seemed, uh, would it be safe to say he sort of saw in parallel the story of the Jews and the story of other displaced? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Both he and his son, Yassel Bergner, saw those stories in parallel. He saw that they were both races threatened with extinction, and that's what his artist son, Joffel Bergner, painted. Joffel Bergner was here a lot longer than Melech Ravitch, and Melech Ravitch's observations about Australia have that uh, rash generalisation about them that travellers have when they're in a place for a short time. Bergner was here for 11 years, and he lived in Melbourne and there were lots of urban Aborigines in the places where he lived. And those are the people he painted. He painted them with terrific sympathy and much more emotional identification than his father had in the short time that he was here. And in fact, he made that, Bergner made that identification quite concrete because he used the same model, his friend, the poet Jossel Bierstein as a model for both his Aborigines and his Jews. And he was actually painting 
two series of paintings in parallel. You say that you saw them in parallel and Ravage saw them in parallel. Bergner was painting two series of paintings in parallel. One was about the Warsaw that was going up in flames behind him. And the other was about the Aborigines whom he saw in Melbourne. I, I so appreciated what you included of Bergner's writing because, again, I think it, it both spoke to his connection there, it spoke to his connection to his father, which seems like it was a really strong relationship and one that played out through their lives, yes? And yes, it did. I, I've learned a lot more about Bergner since I wrote the book. I have to say that I fell in love with Jossel Bergner. He was still alive when I started the project and we spoke on the phone and he was very generous and supportive. And in contrast to Ravitch, about whom there's very little written in English as far as his Australian travels go, there's a whole book about the territorialist search for a homeland and Ravitch gets a few lines in it. Uh, so what we know about Ravitch's Australian travels, we only know from what he wrote. And what I know, I only know from what was translated, because my Yiddish isn't up to reading him in the original. Although I, I tried very hard to improve my Yiddish so that I would be able to read him in the original, when I never got there. But Bergner was much written about, and... There are books on Bergner and there are people still alive who are talking about Bergner. And from all of that research, I've learned that he was totally obsessed with his father. And part of that was because his father was such a disappointment to him in being an, not just an absent father because he was traveling, but when he was with his son, he was indifferent through his art. So Bergner would show his father his painting and his father barely reacted, barely looked at it. And I... Bergner felt that very, very keenly. At the same time, he admired his father. And another of Bergner's preoccupations, apart from his father, was with Kafka. And Kafka also had a, a very difficult and obsessive relationship with his father. So all his life, he had this feeling of rejection and quite literal abandonment. When Ravitch brought his family to Australia, he couldn't make a homeland for the Jews here, but he did make a home for his wife and his two children here. He brought them here, and as soon as Yossel arrived, Ravitch left. And he, he left his wife and his two children here without any provision. So there was that aspect of the abandonment and the rejection. But on the other hand, he deeply admired his father as a poet and a writer and a Yiddishist. And he spent a lot of time and effort and money in Israel setting up a Melifrovich archive and having his work translated into Hebrew. Not into English, unfortunately, for me. 
Uh-huh. And his paintings, the uh, series that he did of his father, Melifrovich in the Kimberleys, that were based on the photographs that Ravitch had taken in Australia, they were the paintings of a son for a dreamy, wildly idealistic, absent father who'd gone in pursuit of what Bergner thought was a foolish dream and left his family behind, and particularly his little 13-year-old son, as Yossel was at the time in 1933. But it's a boy missing his father, and his paintings were of his father. Were you surprised sort of where this story took you and some of the twists and turns along the way? I was surprised at how many strands it had in it. The story itself, uh, because there was very little to read about it except for what I had translated of Ravitch's writing, I never got further than that with that story of Ravitch in Australia. But where it took me was the association with Bergner. I never, I never thought when I started writing the book that I was also writing a book about Bergner. But Bergner became half the book. And I was really intrigued then as to the fact that I was actually writing Australian art history because Bergner was so influential, even though he was 16 and a half when he arrived here. He was someone who'd seen the real paintings that the other important Australian artists who were very young at the time had only seen in books. And he was already, at 17, he was an evolved expressionist painter. And he changed, he had a, a large part in changing the face of Australian painting. He started painting, as I said, the Aborigines of in urban Melbourne, nobody had ever painted urban Aborigines before. But he also, it was a depression, he painted unemployed people, he painted poverty-stricken families living in the streets. Nobody had painted those subjects before. And I was writing, as I was researching Bergner's history, I was writing part of Australian art history, which was pretty unexpected for me. And the uh, the book has many strands in it, as you'll have seen. It's got the story of Indigenous Australians in it, how they were treated, how whites reacted to them. It's also got, as a wider context, the story of the territorialists' 130-year search for a Jewish homeland outside Palestine. And it's got that struggle between the Zionists and the territorialists. The territorialists saw way back in the 20s that if they were going to displace the Arabs in Palestine, that they would turn into a military state and that Jewish values would be trodden on in the meantime. They were writing about that back then. And that became one of the strands in the book, 
as well. And then the much larger picture, which I always knew I was interested in, was the worldwide crisis of refugees. We've got over 70 million people moving around the world now in search of a home. And Ravitch's dreamy idealism seems to me to provide a solution, in part at least, to some of that. And as uh, one of my readers said, an American actually, who was very moved by the book and saw parallels between your native peoples and ours, the practical is sometimes the impractical. And although Ravitch was seen certainly by his son and by many other people as a dreamer, he saw that the empty spaces in the world could take in all of those homeless people. And, and they are young, enterprising, energetic people who, as America's and Australia's migrants have shown and proven, they build the society and make it into something much broader and wider and deeper. So it took me into all those places that in the beginning was just this eccentric out quest. Well, I, I have to say you've done this really brilliantly. I think it does tell multi-layered stories. There's so much to unpack. Uh, and the work in translation for those of us who couldn't have read it in the, in the original is just so insightful. And, you know, again, he was prescient then, and you find that there is, you know, history repeats itself. So there's much to take away from this from this reading. Um, so thank you again, Anna. The name of the book for our listeners is Melek Rabish, The Eccentric Outback Quest of an Urbane Yiddish Poet from Poland. Uh, the book is published in Australia, and we will have it available at the Yiddish Book Center's bookstore shop yiddishbookcenter.org Thank you again and um, I hope you'll continue to tell stories Thank you very much Lisa it's been a great pleasure Alright, be well, thanks Bye bye You've been listening to The Schmooze a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts For more on Yiddish and Jewish culture visit yiddishbookcenter.org Today's podcast was coordinated by Sam Brivik and produced by Sarah Blakefeld Be well be healthy, and tune in again soon.